We're going to be talking out of the book of Joshua, so why don't you find Joshua, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Thank you for lipping those books out for me. Sometimes I have a brain cramp. Joshua, we're going to be reading a couple different verses here in just a moment. It is, as has been mentioned, the last Sunday before a new year. And uh, I just wanted us to get our focus on 2011. I'm told that an optimist stays up on New Year's Eve to see the new year in. And a pessimist stays up on New Year's Eve to make sure the old one leaves. Which one are you? Are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? Well, we ought to be optimistic. Amen. Because who's in charge of our future? Yeah, the Lord. I believe 2011 can be the year you've been waiting for all your life. Isn't that a neat thought? I, I mean, I, I think everyone here this morning has probably envisioned at some point a time period where they would say, you know, this is what I'm, I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for this particular moment. I'm waiting for this particular blessing or, or good thing or happening. And who's to say right now, we're just a few days away from 2011, who's to say right now that next year will not be the year you've been waiting for all your life? Isn't that a cool thought? Why not? There comes a moment, I believe there comes a moment when God says yes to all of our promises. And why can't that be 2011? Where God finally looks at your life, He pays attention to you because you really feel like He hasn't been paying much attention to you. And, and, and He finally sees you and He begins to say yes to all of those promises that He put in your heart. Well, I want to talk about that for just a few moments this morning and help you understand what your part in that equation needs to be in order for God to begin to say yes, and perhaps making 2011 the greatest year you've ever had, the year you've been waiting for all your life. And so I want to talk this morning, I've entitled it, Stepping Into Your Future. Stepping Into Your Future. And I want to read just a couple passages here from the book of Joshua. And uh, I'll explain a little bit of what's happening here, but just bear with me. Joshua chapter 1 and then I'm going to leap over to the third chapter and read just a couple of verses there. But I'm going to pull out several things as the Israelites, the children of Israel, now under the leadership of Joshua, are getting prepared to step into the thing that God had promised for them all the centuries through. They're getting ready to finally see the manifestation of that. It says, Joshua 1, verse 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, meaning the river, and you and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. And so here we see the reiteration of the promise that God is saying, Moses is gone. This patriarch is gone. Joshua, you demand. And now you're going to finish what Moses started. How would you like that? How would you like to follow someone like Moses? I mean, wouldn't that be terrible? It's like, it's like if you're in a sports situation, it's like you have to play a position that had a Hall of Famer in it before you. 
Or that if you were a coach and, and you were now taking a team, it's just won three or four national titles, and that coach decides to, to retire, and now you're the coach. Now, I don't know about you, but that, those are some big shoes to fill. And here's Joshua being told that now it's on him. You're going to finish up what Moses got started. Now drop to verse 10. It says, Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp, command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So he begins to uh, put before them the sound of preparation. It's going to happen. This is the moment you've been waiting for all your life. This is that moment. Drop over to chapter 3. I want to begin reading with verse 2. There were numerous things that happened in the verses, the chapter that I'm not reading to you. But now we get to chapter 3, verse 2. They're just on the brink of doing exactly what the Lord has said to them. Chapter 3, verse 2, it says, So it was, after three days, that the officers went through the camp. And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from the place, from your place, and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by, by, by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. Verse 5, And Joshua said to the people, and this is where we're going to sort of zero in. He said, Sanctify yourselves. Everyone say that. Say, Sanctify yourself. Didn't say the Lord would sanctify you. In this instance, it says that you're to sanctify yourself. It's important. We'll be there in just a moment. Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Stepping into your future. Now, the day had arrived for the children of Israel to finally step into their promise. As many of you will recall, it was a long time coming. They had spent over 400 years in captivity in Egypt. They got into captivity because, as you'll recall, Joseph, through that providential series of happenings, was finally led to Egypt where he arose as number two in all of the land. His brothers came. You know the story. They had sold him into slavery, but there was reconciliation that took place. They went back and, and got their father and brought their father into Egypt. And that is where the Israelites began to dwell, was in Egypt. And under that particular Pharaoh, uh, the Israelites had a very uh, kind and benevolent situation. But the Scripture tells us that there was a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph and did not know God. And all of a sudden, the winds of change and circumstance occurred. And what had once been a place of favor now turned into a place of slavery. And now for some 400 years... The children of Israel had been in slavery, in Egypt, captivity. And they cried out to the Lord. They cried out saying, deliver us. We want to be delivered. And, and they knew the promises that they had through their patriarchal line that God had a land for them and that God had a supply and a provision and that God had a promise for them. And they cried out. Can you imagine 400 years of crying out to God? Have mercy. If we have 48 hours, we... We say, God, you're slow, you're slow, you're slow. 
400 years they've cried out to God. And, and suddenly Moses comes on the scene and he's the deliverer. You know the story. Through the miraculous events of the Exodus, he, he leads them out of Egypt. And they cross the Red Sea and they begin to move on the brink of seizing their promise, but there was a problem. They had a generation that had been so ingrained with the mentality of Egypt that they couldn't rise up and fight. And so when they sent the spies in and, and they came back with a report, uh, there was a report of 12, 10 of which said that the land was filled with giants. There's no way we can possess the land. They're too great for us. In fact, the Scripture literally says that the spies saw themselves as grasshoppers. And because they saw themselves as grasshoppers, that's how everyone else saw them. It's an interesting way that's phrased. It's a great message in there. How you see yourself at times is how everybody else is going to see you. There were two people, Joshua and Caleb. They brought a good report. They were the ones that said, we're well able we can do this. Caleb was the one who said, give me that mountain. I want that mountain. And so these two had a great report, but the predominant report was that you couldn't do it. And it rippled through that generation of Israelites. And so the, the whole, the whole uh, 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 generation, the whole uh, population of Israelites caught that mentality and it shut them down right there. And so they wandered in the wilderness for some 40 years. Why did they have to wander? Because God had to weed out a mentality. God had to weed out a way of thinking. There was no way. Listen to me, folks. If we don't weed out some of our thinking, we will never get to the year we always hope for. The thing that's standing before you and the promises of God has nothing to do with your circumstance. Most of it has to do with what's between your ears. The way you think, the way you see, the way you perceive may very well be the greatest giant you have to overcome in order to get into a better day and into a better promise. And God had to weed that generation out. He literally let that generation die off save two. Joshua and Caleb. And so now here we find Moses dying off the scene. Joshua arises and God commissions now Joshua to pick up where Moses left off. And now he's saying the time has come. Hallelujah. This is our moment. This is, this, is, this is that which we've been hearing about and praying about and thinking about. And, and now the previous generation has been cleansed. A new generation with a new mentality has come. Now is the time for the promise. Can anyone say it's about time? It's a 400 plus years of waiting for a promise. Now listen to me. You need to write these passages down. These are underlinable passages in your Bible that if you've never underlined them, you need to do so this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. It says this, For all the promises of God in Him are what? Are what? All the promises are what? Yes. Yes, and in Him, amen. Amen means so be it. To the glory of God through us. All of God's promises are yes. This is what's so neat. Whatever God has promised to us as believers, whatever is in this book that God says is a part of your and my inheritance as believers. If it says this is a promise and God has said it, then you can bank on it. It's a yes to you. 
I believe that within the confines of the Scripture, God can speak to our hearts and He can give us other promises as well. I'll just give you an example. I believe that one of our promises is that we're to have a permanent facility that we're to worship in and raise to the glory of God. Now, nowhere in this Scripture does it say go build something at 945 Main Road. But I believe that that's a promise that fits within the context of the Word and it glorifies God. I believe He's spoken it to my heart. I've got at least a couple that will agree with me. And in that, I can say that promise is yes and amen. Yes and amen. And God says yes and amen to your promise as well. You can take it to the bank. Now, my wife's favorite passage is Jeremiah 29.11. Listen to this. It says, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you. This is the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. Do you know that right now God's thinking about you? He's thinking about me. He's thinking about us. It's amazing. There must be a lot on his mind. But the Scripture says He's thinking about all of these things and He's thinking thoughts at this very moment about your future and my future and our future. And some of you right now, you need to understand that God's thinking about your, your, your financial uh, pressures and your financial crush and the financial issues of your life. God's thinking about that. Some of you need to hear that God's thinking about your career and your job. God's thinking about your, your influence and what you can do in His kingdom. He's thinking about how you could be of impact. He's thinking about your marriage. He's thinking about your family. He's thinking about your relationships. God has a lot on His mind, doesn't He? And He's thinking good thoughts about all of these things. He's thinking these things to you. He has a future and a hope. That's what God's thinking about. And He wants to say yes. He wants to say yes to all of these things. Can I just... I was studying for this and thinking about it. And some of you may have been here, some of you may not have been here, but back in 2004, which is now six years ago, we had, we had a conference here, and it was a prophetic conference, we called it. And we called in a couple of people that had credible prophetic ministries, and they moved amongst us and just declared the word of the Lord to us and declared his heart and his mind to us. And I remember Brian Cagle was with us. And when Brian was here, you know, Brian's kind of a different kind of a person. I think if you have a prophetic streak in you, it makes you just a tad odd. And that may explain me. Just a tad odd. And I'll never forget, I was sitting over here. I don't know why I was sitting over here. I was sitting here on a stool and Brian was doing his thing on a guitar. And he began to prophesy. And he said something out of his mouth that outwardly, because everybody was looking at me, I was smiling. That's what you do at church. You smile and you nod your head. And internally I was going because what he was about ready to say, I was thinking they ain't no way, no how. He started to prophesy. He said, Kevin, the Lord says that I will bring, I will bring pastors to this place from all over the nation. And he went on and on and said some things and I'm sitting there on my stool. Now this is 2004. I'm sitting on my stool going, you know, looking holy, you know. And inside, inside I'm going, yeah, yeah, like they're going to come to them all. Yeah, that's kind of where I was at that time. 
Now, let me tell you, the greatest hindrance to God bringing that to pass was not the mall. The greatest hindrance to that coming to pass was right there. The greatest hindrance in your life has nothing to do with what's around you. It's not your boss's fault. It's not your parents' fault. It's not your pastor's fault. It's not this fault or that fault. Your biggest problem is right there. Because I'll just share this with you. I mean, it kind of blew me away. This year, coming year, in February, we're going to have pastors from all over the nation come to them all. Who to thunk? Apparently God, for I know the thoughts that I have for you, says the Lord. Thoughts for a future. And the, why do I tell you these things? Because I want you to begin to connect some dots. That God has said things to you and to me that at the moment we're going, oh, I, well, I'd like for that to happen, but I can't see any way of that happening. Right there, God's needing to cleanse your mind. Because if you can think it, if you can think only in the natural, then that's all you'll get is what the natural will give you. But if you'll begin to think God's promise, then you'll begin to see God move in your life. As a man thinks, the scripture says, so is he. As he thinks, so is he. And so what happened? You say, well, well, why did God wait till 2011 to bring to pass what he said in 2004? And we can we could, you know, cut some flips and give you theological treatises. I'll tell you why. Because he had to get my brain right. It's as simple as that. He's got to get your mentality right. Now, the Israelites had a future. They had a future too. their future was land. God kept speaking land to them. Have you ever wondered why God would speak land to them? I guess maybe God's into real estate. He, 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 he knows, you know, real estate will never lose its value. It's like Will Rogers said one time. He said, they ain't making any more of it. So maybe it was that. No, it didn't, it didn't mean any of that. Land was more than just dirt and soil. The land represented the dreams of the people. Lands to them represented the ability to prosper. It represented housing. You've heard me say this before. You, 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 you got to realize that housing in Egypt probably wasn't all that great. They were living in Section 8 public housing. Pharaoh's place. That's what it was called. You know, the sign looked good, but once you got to the housing, it looked pretty bad. And, 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 and so they lived in these, these cruddy conditions. They, they didn't own anything. Uh, they worked literally for slave wages. And for them, when they heard land, it represented to them a place where I could finally be free. Where I could finally, if I worked, I was working for myself and my family. If, if, if I was working, I could, I could finally get the house I always dreamed of having. I could finally get some of the things that I've always wanted. It wasn't just about getting more stuff or better stuff. It was just getting stuff to where you could, you could live affordably and comfortably. And, and so the land to them was a lot more than I'm just going to give you a little dirt and soil here. It meant that there was a future for them. And some of you are in that same position as well. You're thinking, am I always going to live this way? Am I always going to live from paycheck to paycheck? Am I always going to live under this incredibly terrible work situation? Am I, am I always going to live in, in, in this scenario for all of my life? And when you hear the promise of God, the promise of God of land to you is there's a better day. It's a land that 
overflows, the Scripture said, with milk and honey. And that imagery means that, that there's resource that finally is not only enough to get by, but it's enough finally to stick a little bit away. Land. That's what it meant to the Israelites. Land. It meant a new season. It meant new opportunities. It meant new possibilities. And this was big stuff for the Israelites. And it ought to be big stuff for us too. And finally the day had come, according to what I've just read to you here, the day had finally arrived for them to move forward. Now I'm going to ask a rhetorical question here. So what that means is don't answer it out loud. You could be embarrassed. Do you know what an airplane, a bicycle, and a church all have in common? It's this. The moment they stop moving forward, they're in trouble. Can I share this with you? The moment you stop moving forward, you're in trouble. I'll never forget one time I worked at a grade school during my college years and uh, I was thinking about snow and and it had snowed heavily one night. I worked from three to eleven. I got off at eleven o'clock at night and it had snowed unmercifully that night there in Olathe, Kansas. And uh, I had to stay all night. I locked up. And in order for me to get out of where I was at, you go through a neighborhood, but then ultimately you had to, you had to go up this hill. And once you got up that hill, you were pretty much, you could sail on home. But that hill, that hill was going to be difficult, especially since it had just snowed a fresh six inches or more. And, uh, and, and, I, you know, I was not wanting to sleep all night at the grade school. And so I knew that when I got to that place, I had a manual transmission vehicle and I knew I was going to have to, once I got started with that thing, you couldn't shift gears or something because as soon as you clutched it and power left the wheels, you could be in trouble on that hill with snow on it. So I knew once I got going, I could not stop because if I stopped moving, I was going to sleep at the grade school. Some of you have stopped moving. And you're sleeping in the place you don't want to be. And, and we're going to get moving in 2011. And you're going to have to keep moving in order that you can eclipse that hill that you're going to have to eclipse in order that you can begin to see what God wants to bring to pass in your life come to you. So, so in order for this promise to the Israelites, for them to step into the future with the Lord, Joshua tells them to prepare. See, it just doesn't happen. He says, prepare. And I, I believe before we step into 2011, uh, and even as we begin to step into it, we're going to have to do some preparation. So, so why? Why do we prepare for a promise? How can we even do that when we really don't know all that it may hold for us? I mean, right now, you, you know there are some promises. They could be nebulous. They could be kind of, you know, they, you don't have all the details to them. How do you know even how to prepare for your promise? The promise for Israel and for us means that we're going to be moving into some uncharted territory. In order for you to get to your promise, you're going to go by a way that you've never been before. If you know all the steps you're already going to take in 2011, listen very carefully. If you already know all the steps you're going to take this coming year, it could be that all you're going to do is a rerun of this past year. Are you following me? Some of you have 2011 planned out, and that's great. But can I just share this with you? If it looks a lot like 2010, it probably will be 2010. 
even though the calendar says a different date. In fact, can I just share this with you? If you've already got everything planned out and you're comfortable looking at the same old stuff, some of us call that going around the same old mountain. Well, despite being an uncharted territory, we do know that there are going to be some battles. Amen? Come on. 2011 is going to hold some battles. See, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't receive that word. Then you're not ready to go into the promised land. They're going to be some battles. You may not know the name of every enemy you're going to face, but I'll guarantee you there'll be some battles to face. We know that there are going to be some sacrifices made in 2011. Amen? If you're going to go to a promise, you're going to make some sacrifices. We may not know how much that sacrifice may entail, but we know there's probably some sacrifices. And here's the good news. We know that in 2011, God's going to be doing some miracles. Amen. But you see, we haven't been told, have we, as to how much faith we're going to have to exercise to see those miracles come to pass. So what that means is that despite this uncharted territory that's in front of us, we're going to have to prepare. We're going to have to prepare. There's two reasons, I believe, for preparation. Number one is it's for validation. You may want to write that down, validation. God validates people for their destiny by virtue of their preparation. In other words, God says, you, 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 and you are ready for promise because you prepared. There's no sense me giving promise to you, 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 and you, because if I gave it to you, you would crash. So preparation, listen to me, validates your ability to receive a promise. Some of you, like me at times, have said, Lord, I feel like I've been preparing for years. And God says, yes. Because what I have for you is going to take that type of preparation so when it's handed to you, you don't take it and crash it. So your preparation validates you for the size of the promise. If all it takes is 48 hours to prepare you for whatever God's promise is, I'm not saying it's not the Lord. I'm just simply saying it's probably not what it could have been. If he's taken years to prepare you, I will assure you it will be worth the wait. Because the preparation validates you for that. Some people never get to their land because they've never allowed preparation to happen in their life. They refuse to do it. You know, I'm, I'm a faith person and, and, and I have charismatic roots and, and, and I understand the principles of faith and we've went through the name it and claim it and blab it and grab it and declare it and have it and all the things. I'm just telling you, our major problem in all of that doctrine was we did not understand preparation. And so what God would do in order to show us that a precept works, he would allow something to take place and we'd get it and then we'd crash. We confessed that we were going to get some new toy, some new boat, some new jet ski, some new hobby, and God would give it to us, and then we'd never show up in the house of God again because we got to worshiping our toys instead of honoring the Lord. We crashed. So, validation. Number two, the reason he prepares us is for expectation. Expectation. I think preparation cultivates expectation. You don't prepare for what you don't believe is going to happen. You know, there's some, I just got hit with another revelation. That's why people don't prepare because they really don't believe it's going to happen to them. They don't believe the door will open. They don't believe that God will really do that. They don't believe it. They just opt out and say, well, if God wants to do it, I guess he'll do it. If he wants me to have it, I guess I'm available for it. No, what are you doing to prepare? Preparation has a lot of faith involved in it, doesn't it? 
When you're preparing, you're believing that God is going to do what he says he will do. If you're going to run a marathon and you plan on winning that particular race, you just don't show up one day and say, I'm going to run 26.2 miles. That just isn't going to happen. What do you begin to do? You begin to exercise and run because you, you believe God has a trophy for you. You believe there's a winner's circle for you, but unless you prepare for that moment, it does you no good. God has given you a promise, but the promise sits on the shelf because you've not prepared. So Joshua goes through the ranks and he asks the people to do some things. And in asking them to do some things, what he's doing is he's stirring up their expectations. He looks at him and he says, prepare yourselves. The time has come. We're going into the promise. And, he's, and he declares that because he's, he's saying we've, we've done some things that have readied us. And now I'm stirring some things up in you for you to understand that your season is about to change. Your future is just a few steps away. The year you've always hoped for is finally on the horizon. And he says, prepare yourselves. I'm asking you, and I understand our whole body is not here today, so I hope they, they click on iTunes and they can catch up, but you're here and this is going to help you. You are on the brink of the greatest season you have ever known. The word of the Lord to you is prepare yourself. Come on now, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to be tough in a good word because this really is a good word, but if you're, if you're, if you're railing against the preparation, then you're just, you're just extending the moment of the promise being manifested. We're going to have to prepare. Amen. I figure if God did some things through his chosen people, Israel, and that God did some things through his son, Jesus, then I suspect I'm not exempt to some of his ways. How do we prepare? Four things I think we need to do to prepare. Write these down. You have a week. A new year starts. You can begin to make preparations. Number one, stir up their minds to the promise. God looked at Joshua and he said to him, he said, don't, don't forget, remember, meditate on my word, on my promises. Joshua actually goes through the camp and he tells them to remember. And I believe a part of your preparation is you need to stir up again in your mind. All the things that God said he wanted to do. It wasn't just your wish list or dream list. I mean, if you have just sort of self-generated a list, then God is not obligated to that list. You say, well, the Bible says that he will grant us the desires of our heart. If you will study that in the Hebrew, what that actually says is that because you've had a heart change and because it's God's heart now in you, he will, give, he will grant to you the desires of his will in your heart. And he wants to stir your mind up again and stir your spirit up again as to what he really wants to do in your life. In 2 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2, in the New Testament, it says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which, Peter says, I stir up your pure, pure minds by the way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Peter says this, I'm writing this to you in order that I can begin to get inside your mind. Because as a man thinks, so is he. And I'm going to stir your mind up again 
to the knowledge of what God has said is yours by way of inheritance, is yours by way of promise. I need to stir your mind up to some things. Folks, every Sunday my wife stands up here usually and reads praise reports. One of the reasons we read those praise reports is to solicit your faith and understanding that if God did it for this person, and we know this person, and I'll just share this. Some of these folks, I go, that's amazing. Which just proves that God is no respecter of persons. And, and a part of that is to solicit your faith so that you will believe that God will do things for you too. But in that, every time we hear one of those, he's stirring up our mind under remembrance that God is a promise-fulfilling God. He is a God that wants to bring to pass His goodwill, of course, His good way. And He wants to do big things in our life. But, but we've got to keep our minds stirred unto that. I have to stir my mind under remembrance. There was a day that a bank wouldn't loan me $70,000 in order to finish the renovations that needed to happen in this building. And I didn't know how we were going to get it. I didn't know where I was going to go. I sat down with the banker. He looked at me, $70,000. There are people probably that have credit lines on their credit card with more than that on it. But he wouldn't even give that to me. Wouldn't even consider it. And I remember walking out thinking $70,000 was the biggest number I had ever seen in my life. And that's really not true. I'd seen bigger numbers in my life. I'd face even greater obstacles, but I've always found this out, that whatever obstacle you're in front of at the moment, it's the biggest obstacle you've ever seen. And so 70K may not sound like a lot, but it was a lot to me, and I remember sharing it with us. Some of you were there. You remember that Sunday, and like, like $88,000 came in that Sunday. That Sunday. And we finished it all up for cash. God did that in our midst. It was a giant. It was slayed. We pressed through. But our minds need to be stirred under remembrance. That Remember what I said? I remember clearly what I looked at you and said. I said, folks, this is flexing our faith and flexing our muscles for $80,000. There's going to come a day that God's going to increase that number and we're going to have to flex our muscles one more time, but it's not going to be for the same amount. It may be for like 1.5 million. But if God will send 70K to a group in the mall, why wouldn't He send 1.5 million? And the only thing that stops us is what's here. What's here. So you got to stir up your minds. Some of you have testimonies in your own life. God doing great things. I've got personal testimonies I can give you of wonderful things that have gone on in my life. You need to stir yourself under remembrance. You need to look at your children and say, you remember when God did this. You remember when God uh, uh, revealed this or unveiled this or provided this. Stir up your mind under remembrance. If you're getting ready for 2011, the year you've been waiting for all your life, you better get your mind in a place where you can believe that His promise can indeed come to pass. Number two, we got to extinguish the voices of doubt. You know, it was interesting that the people who kept you out of promise, the ones who always give bad reports, the ones who only see giants and not miracles, this is what the Bible says they need to go. Because this is what Joshua does. I didn't read this verse to you. This is, this is kind of like a downer verse. But in chapter 1, 
This is the Lord speaking through Moses in verse 18. It says, whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words in all that you command him shall be put to death. I, I got a feeling obedience swept through the camp. <laughs> Only be strong and of good courage. Now, I'm going to give you a New Testament understanding of an Old Testament happening here. What was, what was happening at this particular point? It was a radical command. God, speaking through Moses, said, if you begin to hear, listen, if you begin to hear the voices that were there in the original generation, there was a generation, now remember, I already told you, there was a generation that couldn't go into their promise because, because all they could see were giants. And, and when you have voices around you of doubt and, and despair, and, and they're always looking, you can't do it, it's just too big, it's too great. Can I just share this? You've probably heard this before. You can look at a situation that's filled with giants and you can either say this, that the giants are so big they'll kill you, or the giants are so big you can't miss them when you go after them. It's really all about perspective. Extinguish the voices of doubt. You cannot have those voices when you're going into uncharted territory. There will always be people. They've never been there either, but they'll be full of counsel as to what you should be doing. I have people, I've had bankers sit down with me and counsel me to the ways of the world as to how you do certain things. And I remember one guy, and bless his heart, I love him, and he's a nice guy, and I know he was trying to help me, and he was sharing some things with me. And I finally had to look at him, and I'll speak his name out. I finally said, Mr. Banker, Mr. Banker, I understand why you would say this. I get the process. I understand why it is that you would put this before me. This is the way it's done. This is the way it's looked at in boardrooms. This is the way people, movers and shakers in the world determine and make decisions. But I just need to share this with you. That this is God's house. This is God's will. This is His way. And if you don't mind, no offense, but you ain't God. And you can look and say it's never been done before, but there was a time nobody ever ran a four-minute mile until someone believed they could run it. And the minute, is it not interesting, the minute somebody, one person ran a four-minute mile, now, now you can't even get on the track unless you're under four minutes. Isn't that amazing? One guy, nobody could do it. One guy did it, and now everyone can do it. Why is it? Because most people are locked into the natural. And once they see in the natural it can be done, then they'll say, oh, then it must be able to be done. If he can do it, I can do it. And that's why, for years, nobody climbed Mount Everest. But once one person climbed Mount Everest, now you can book your own climbing party and go to Mount Everest, and they'll, somebody will take you up to Mount Everest, uh, and, and you can see it. There's literally been a hundred plus people that have gone to the top of Mount Everest when nobody could go because they said it couldn't be done. You, there was no oxygen. People would die. One person does it. And now that one person does it, everyone else says, well, golly, I guess if he did it, I can do it. And since, since I'm here, I guess I'll go do it. And then we do it. But here's the key. Somebody has to be the one to press into the uncharted territory. Who's the one that presses into the arena no one's ever been in before? When everyone's hollering at you, it can't be done, it can't be done, it can't be done, it can't be done. When do you shake it off? And simply because God has said it, and now it's in your mind and it's in your spirit, and if God said it and I believe it, it can be done. It can be done. But you got to extinguish those voices. 
very compassionately, I'll say this, 2011 for some of you means you got to cut loose some people in your life that do nothing but provide an anchor to you to drag you down. You can love them. You can reach out to them. I get it. But there comes a moment that if they don't want to go into a new season, then sayonara, I'm not sitting with you in depression land. I'm not sitting with you anymore in the desert and in the wilderness. I'm, I'm done spitting sand. I'm ready to go to my new place. Thirdly, what do you do to prepare? You got to keep your eyes on the Lord. You got to keep your eyes on the ark. In that ark, there were three things that were carried around. You know, the ark represented the presence of God. There were three things that the Israelites kept in the ark. They kept Moses' staff, his rod, which I liken to the supernatural. That's where the supernatural flowed out of his staff. Secondly, there were the Ten Commandments. It was the codification of God's ways and his expectations in our life, not just of do's and don'ts, but there was promise in the Ten Commandments as well. And then thirdly, there was the jar of manna, which represented God's provision and resource to the people of Israel. And Joshua looked at the people and he said, as we're going into these uncharted areas, this uncharted territory, we've got to keep our eyes on the ark. We got to keep our focus on God and we need to keep our focus on all that is in God. We need to keep our focus that he is a supernatural God. He supernaturally does things. He has the ability to move on on rulers and nations. And, and that's what the staff represented. We, we, we need to keep our eyes on his ways and his precepts for God's will done God's way will never lack God's resource. And then we also have to keep our eyes on when he brings provision. And as you begin to keep your eyes on the Lord and the things that are in him, what happens is, is that he shows up and he begins through you to defeat your enemies and defeat the giants. You begin to walk in his ways. He gives you provision. All of a sudden, the promises that you wondered, how in the world would he get them to me? You find them coming to you faster then you can even handle, but you're going to have to keep your eyes on the Lord. 2011, folks, when we cross over, we got to keep our eyes on the ark. Then lastly, number four, it said to sanctify yourself. Sanctify yourself. Literally, most versions say consecrate yourself. Consecrate yourself. Consecration, sanctification can mean many things. This is what I, I just... I'm going to just dwell on. I, I believe the Lord through Joshua looked at the people and he said this. You're about ready to go into your promise. You're about ready to have the year, the season, the opportunity you've always waited for. You're going to have to make you make yourself uncommon. See, God's not taking in an ordinary people, right? He's taking in an extraordinary people. And he literally says, consecrate yourselves. He never elaborates. That's what's interesting to me. In that passage, he doesn't give a list of the things they need to do in order to consecrate themselves. And I've come to this conclusion. I believe that the reason all that was said was consecrate yourself was because he was pitching it into their, uh, into their arena. He was putting it into their life and saying, consecrate yourself. What are you going to do that would cause you to be uncommon? From everyone else. No, no, no legalization, no legalisms. 
pastor isn't going to just tell you what to do and then you just do it. I just want to ask you, what are you going to do to be uncommon? Come on, it's time we quit living like everyone else. What are we going to do to be uncommon? Everybody wants God to do something uncommon in their life. And yet we'll, we refuse to sow uncommon. What a man soweth, that shall he also reap. We, we want to live ordinary, but yet we expect God to do the extraordinary. We want to live at the lowest common denominator, and yet our expectation is, is that God shows up and does something of the highest order. Joshua looks at the people and basically says, consecrate yourselves. Do something out of the norm, not a part of the routine. Break out of the, the cultural mentalities of your Christianity. We're always looking at someone to justify ourselves. Well, they get to do it. Why can't I do it? Will they do it over there? Will they get to do it? Hey, you know what? And they'll sit in their desert forever. The question isn't what they get to do. The question is, do you want to walk to a new season? A new day? A new opportunity? You keep pointing you keep pointing at the turkeys. God's calling you to be an eagle. The Scripture doesn't tell us what they did. We can only guess. But I think there's something critical here. And I just want to ask the question, what should we do? What should you do to step into the future? What are some uncommon things you might do to prepare for your promise in 2011? You know, there's an old saying, you've all heard it, that to get what you've never had, you have to do something you've never done. If you want something that you've never had, don't think doing the same thing you've always done over and over and over again will get it there. You know, that's the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. We're insane as a population. It's time to do the uncommon. If you don't want a rerun of the previous year, then what will it take? I just want to suggest things. It wasn't codified, and I'm not codifying it for you, but, but I can share some things as a church that we provide opportunity for, and that is, for instance, a vertical service where we actually choose to worship God into a new year, to intercede, to gather around His table, to bring seed, to do these things. You say, well, I've never done that before. good place to start. Maybe. Maybe. As a church, we, we challenge you to enter the 21-day fast. We don't tell you how to fast. I'll be talking about that more next Sunday. But you know, if you've never entered into a fast, then maybe this is your moment to do something uncommon, to do something out of the routine. To do, you say, well, now when else does this stuff, I don't... But then don't do it. But don't be mad when I wave bye to you when I cross my Jordan. And you'll go, well, I don't know why he get to go and I don't get to go. Well, maybe, maybe we did something you didn't do. Maybe we, maybe we implemented something uncommon in our life that you chose not to implement. I ain't mad at you. God is mad at you. He loves you. Do you know that he loves people in deserts? People say, God doesn't love me. Yeah, he does. He loves you right in your desert. He loves you in your chains. He loves you in your bondage. Sure he does. He loves you in your dysfunctional, messed up life. God loves you so much. As he's looking at all your dysfunction, he goes, I love you. But we think that God's love demands his energy in order to release us. And that is not the case. God says all through his word, if you will do this, then I will do. 
if you will consecrate yourselves, then you're prepared to go into your new season. So nobody's going to force anybody to do the fast. It's just an opportunity to link up with other people and churches all over the nation to do that. There'll be special meetings of intercession in January, and we'll, we'll promote those as we get those scheduled and figured out. So there's going to be opportunities just to kind of step out of the norm. Now, nobody's looking at you and saying you're less spiritual or less of a Christian or you're, you're, you're not saved or come on, let's break out of that silliness and begin to understand God is calling us to a promise and we're trying to figure out how to negotiate him down to the lowest possible energy. God wins every negotiation. He's the best negotiator you will ever run into. In fact, you'll go to the table and you'll start negotiating with God. And what he does is he simply says, no. No. And if you get up and you say, well, then I just, you can do that with a car salesman. And you can go down the road and get you another car salesman, but you're only dealing with one God. There is none like him. This is our eighth year together as a people. We're a little over eight years old. And uh, it's just in my spirit. I believe, I believe it, is, it is the year 2011 is the year. I'm just smiling because it, no pun intended. It is the year to possess the land. And I'll just tell you, there's, there, there are giants there's giants. There are regulatory giants. There are governmental council giants. There are financial giants. There are bank giants. There are giant oak trees. Live oaks and red oaks. And they're giants. And the question is, do you, do you let it get into your mind? And say, there's no way, no how. It just can't be done. Listen, my feeling is, is if Bojangles can get there, we can get there. God is at least as big as Bojangles. But you would think, you would think somehow or another, oh God, I don't know how. And the whole time we drive by Bojangles eating biscuits, shoving biscuits down our face. And we're going, I don't know how God's going to do it. And the whole time Bojangles did it. Come on now, if Bojangles can run a four minute mile, we can run a four minute mile. I don't want to do just something Bojangles got to do. I, I want to do something that's never been done. But in order to do that, we're going to have to consecrate ourselves. Listen to me. Some of you are facing giants in 2011. You already know the giants you're facing. You've already got the report back. You've got relational giants. You've got financial giants. You've got your marriage giants. You've got your financial. I think I already said that. I mean, you just got, you got, you're looking at your giants. And you hear the reports about foreclosure and bankruptcy and and again, I'm not saying those things don't have purpose and people don't have to walk through those things. I'm not suggesting that, but I am suggesting at this point right now, you can't let your giant back you down. You may be in the worst possible situation anybody could envision. I'll say it again. God works best in impossible situations. With man, things are impossible, but with God, 
all things are possible. And they're possible for you. They're possible for me. They're possible for us. Yes, they are. If we just slay the biggest giant we all have first. It's right here. Will you stand with me?